entitled it, Two Announcements, which reveal Christ as the triumphant and glorified King of the world. And last week, we tackled the first announcement. Okay, it was in verses 20 through 26. And Christ announces there the arrival of his hour, right? So suspense has been growing, the entire Gospel of John. We're told his hour is coming. It's going to involve his rest. It's going to involve his death. Um, and it cannot come any sooner than the Father determines, but it's coming. But then here in chapter 12, verse 20, Christ announces that it has arrived. So suspense has been building, and now it's come. Um, Jesus says in 12:23, the hour has arrived for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's unique in the Gospel of John is, is that Christ's glory does not only come after his cross. That's how it is in most of the other Gospels. Christ's glory comes in his cross. It's put on the greatest display in the cross. That's very important. That's what we're going to see this morning. This announcement of Christ was also in response to who? The arrival of who? Remember? The arrival of some, some Greeks, some Gentiles, some Greeks. They come to Jerusalem for Passover, and it triggers, their, announce, their coming triggers this announcement of, of Christ. It's as if Jesus is saying, yes, I've come to be seen by Jews and Greeks alike, but I must be seen as the one who's glorified in my hour. That's why he says what he does here. And it's as people see the glory of Christ in his cross work, as they come to recognize the greatness of of his love and the love of the Father for them who are but rebels and lovers of the world and not God. As they come to be gripped by all that Christ accomplished for them on the cross, that's his glory, then they respond with faith and they are gathered into his, his people. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. Following his announcement, Jesus goes immediately to describing um, how it applies to his disciples. This was all last week. He doesn't say what's going to be accomplished in his hour. He's going to tell us this morning. We've got some amazing verses in front of us this morning. But last week, he immediately applies it to his disciples. Um, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means you follow Christ on the Calvary Road. His death is unique in many ways. And yet last week he said it's also the paradigm for discipleship. Christ triumphs through his willing death, and all disciples must likewise have such a love for Christ, such a fundamental distaste for this world, that they follow Christ on the Calvary Road. But here's the question. How do we get the strength and the motivation to do that. How can we follow Christ like that on the Calvary Road? Where does that motivation come from? Is Christ simply calling disciples to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, to just gut out discipleship? Certainly there's an aspect of discipleship that involves self-denial and labor. But if that's the picture we get in our mind, of just gutting out, following Christ on the Calvary Road, we have a very distorted picture of what Christ has in mind. 
Yes, disciples triumph as Christ triumphs. We don't love our lives even to death. But where does that come from? Why do we have such a loose hold on this world? Where do we get strength? And the answer is that we get strength and desire to follow Christ like this, like what we saw last week, because we've come to be gripped by a greater love. We don't just merely gut out discipleship. We follow in response to the enormity of Christ's love. We follow in response to the salvation he has guaranteed for us. And we follow in response to the new affections we have because of the glory of Christ that we've seen. And that is all what we're going to see this morning, what Christ has accomplished in his, in his cross. So just flip it around, if you will. If your life's not characterized by this kind of discipleship, like we saw last week, following him, Calvary Road, meaning you have a fundamental preference for Christ over above life, if that's not there, then it's evidence that you have not, or at least have not rightly come to grip with the enormity of his love or what he's accomplished on the cross, nor have you seen the glory of Christ as you ought. And that's what we're going to see this morning in, in the verses in front of us. In verses 27 through 36, now, we get the second announcement. He announces his devotion to this hour. He's going to tell us what this hour will involve for him. He's going to tell us why he will endure it. And then he's going to tell us some glorious things he's going to accomplish through it. And then throughout these verses, interwoven with it, we're going to see the world again. Who responds over and over with hard-hearted rejection of Christ. Even in the face of such glory. So Jesus is devoted to this hour, number one, because in it he will glorify the Father through his suffering. Why is he devoted to this hour? Because in it he will glorify the Father through his suffering. In verse 27, he begins by disclosing his deep turmoil on account of this hour. Look at verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. In the Gospel of John, we're not told about Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? You know about that. He sweats drops of blood in agony. John doesn't record that story for us, but we get a similar look into Christ's heart here in this passage. He says, now, that is the hour that he just declared. Now, in this hour for which I've come, my soul is troubled. The word troubled means to experience inner turmoil or deep disturbance, horror, revulsion. These are the emotions that are tied up in it. We saw it back at Lazarus. He comes to the tomb of Lazarus, right? And it says he was troubled, right? He's troubled by this fallen world, the death that he sees as a result of sin in front of him and the unbelief of the crowd behind him. It troubles him. It deeply disturbs him. It's the same word here. But no matter how much trouble he experienced at the tomb of Lazarus, certainly this is much greater here. 
even more intense here. He is deeply disturbed, horrified, inner turmoil. He knows what his hour will involve. He knows it will involve being lifted up on a brutal cross. One of the worst forms of execution imaginable. But that's not all. He knows that in this hour, he will accomplish what he was sent to accomplish. What is that? What did John the Baptist declare at the very beginning? Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Back in chapter 11, we were told that he's going to die as a substitute for the nation. In other words, this hour, Jesus would die as a propitiatory sacrifice. You know 1 John 2, 2? Beloved, I have it. You do not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the what? The propitiation for our sin. That is to say, in his death, Christ absorbed and satisfied the entirety of the wrath of God coming for you and me on account of sin. That means Christ here is troubled and filled with horror because he's looking into the unmixed, undiluted wrath of God for sin. The point is to say that here Jesus knows what his hour is going to include and he's ready to drink this cup. Listen to John Calvin, what he says here. The death which he underwent must therefore have been full of horror because he could not have rendered satisfaction for us without feeling in his own experience the dreadful judgment of God. And hence we come to know more fully the enormity of sin for which the Heavenly Father exacted so dreadful a punishment from his only begotten Son. Let us therefore know that death was not a sport, an amusement for Christ, but that he endured the severest torments on our account. In other words, this moment certainly displayed the greatness, the great glory of the love of Christ, and the unspeakable torment he went through on our account, but it also reveals the greatness of our sin. That is how evil your sin is. Your preference for other things rather than God. Your love of the world. Every one of your sins deserves that kind of wrath. We don't think of sin like we should, do we? Um, we think of it lightly, often. Christ here shows us, no, this is what it's really like, what it really deserves. Deserves that much fury from, from God. Only the God-man could satisfy it. And it reminds us the enormity of his love and of the Father's love for us. Christ died this death for us when we cared nothing for him. He died this death for us while we still loved the world and didn't even think about him and loved our sin. It's when we come to grips with the enormity of our sin 
by beholding Christ. And we come to grips by the judgment that that sin deserves by beholding Christ here. And then we come to grips with the enormity of his love, which would do this for us while we still were ungodly. That's when we experience true faith in him and are made to then love him supremely and follow him on the Calvary road. Well, so great is this revulsion in Christ's soul that look what he says. He says, what should I say? In other words, how should I respond to this turmoil? And he suggests an option. He says, Father, save me from this hour. Could be read as a question or a statement. Father, save me from this hour. It's very similar to what he prays in Gethsemane, isn't it? Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might highlights the enormity of what Christ was about to experience combined with his humanity. He didn't have an extra advantage. He suffered and was horrified by what he was about to go through, just like you and me. He was a real man who had come to suffer for real men, for real people. That's what we see here in his prayer. Save me from this hour. He does not want to go through with it. Because it's natural revulsion from, from death. But no sooner does he offer this suggestion than he, than he rejects it. Because he knows the purpose that he's come. Look what he says. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now what does that mean there? Look at it says. But for this purpose. What is this purpose? What is he talking about? What's not this hour, because that would be redundant. He's not saying, for this hour, I've come to this hour. What is he saying? What's this purpose? We get the answer in the next line, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. That is the purpose why Christ came to this hour. He declares his deeper desire for the Father's glory. While he feels deep revulsion on account of this hour, he is devoted to it because he's come for a single purpose in this hour, the Father's glory. So think about it like this. God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only Son to do this for us. And the Son so loved his Father that he was willing to go even to this extent to suffer for you and me. See that? Salvation's tied up in the Trinity. As the perfect Son, Jesus' devotion to the Father exceeds even the preservation of his life from this hour. He's the perfect man, the man that you and I should have been. He is. And he surrenders to the Father's glory. And to this, the Father responds in verse 28. Look what, he, look what happens. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will again glorify it. It's the third time a voice comes from heaven in Christ's public ministry, right? What's the first time? His baptism. Second time? In the transfiguration. And now it's the third time. And each time, they're making a significant God the Father is making a significant statement about his son. 
identifying him publicly and also serves as a turning point, a marker of a significant turning point in salvation history. That's what we get what we get here. The Father says, I have glorified it. In other words, all through Christ's public ministry and his obedience to the Father, the Father has glorified his name. And now climactically, in this final obedience of the Son, the Father will completely glorify his name in the fullest way. And through this hour now, a turning point in salvation history is going to come. From this point on, the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son is going to center around what? Center around the cross. From this point That's what the Father means by speaking. And that brings us now to verses 29 to 33. He doesn't only triumph over the, the world. Um, he triumphs now over the, the world and the devil. Verses 29 to 33. That's why he's devoted to this hour. And in this section, we really come to the heart of what will be accomplished in Christ's cross work. But before we, we even get that, we get a glimpse of the, of the world. We need to be reminded of the condition of the world. Who it is that Christ has come to die for. Look at verse 29 to 30. This is the hard-hearted ignorance of the, the crowd. The crowd that stood there and, and heard the thunder, the, the, uh, the voice from heaven, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. It's the hard-hearted ignorance of the crowd. Misunderstanding is characterized this crowd all through the Gospel of John, right? We're told in chapter 8 it's because of their spiritual condition. They are children of the devil. They are depraved. They have the DNA of the devil. They cannot hear and understand Christ, and we see it again. It's hard-hearted ignorance. Um, Jesus says that he doesn't need a proof of the Father's answer. The voice is for their sake. It's another witness, another testimony to Christ, who he is, and what he's come to accomplish. And just it's just astonishing. Even in the face of the audible voice of God, who's identifying the mission and the identity of Christ, the world still fails to respond to him correctly. First group, they excuse it away as thunder. Certainly the voice of God sounded like thunder. It sounds like thunder all through the Bible. But notice that they don't only fail to recognize the content of the speech, they also dismiss it altogether as thunder. Um, it's just a natural occurrence. It has nothing to do with Jesus. The other group is no better off. They say it's an angel, even though Jesus has just explicitly prayed to the Father. They dismiss it away. In other words, even a voice from heaven is not enough to convince them. That is the hard-hearted nature of the world, my friends. Remember that as you're sharing the gospel. They don't need more proofs. Even a voice from heaven, it would not change. Their hearts, their minds... And yet this is the world Christ has come to do his work for. Just the contrast is, is amazing. This is the target of Christ's conquering mission. And now we come really to, to the heart of this, of this passage in verses 31 to 33. The triumphant power 
of Christ's death. And we're told four things in these verses. Number one, we're told that his death would judge the world. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. He says, now, that is, in this hour, what I've come to do in my cross. Now, through my cross, the world will be judged. Now, what does that mean? The world is going to be judged. I thought Christ didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world, right? John 3, 16 and 17. It's true, he didn't. But in another sense, Christ's coming brought a judgment with it. So remember John 3, 19. It says, and this is judgment. Light has come into the world, and the world has loved darkness more than the light. Christ's coming was for salvation, but it also brought judgment with it. The coming of Christ was the display of God's greatest love to humanity, right? It's saying, this is how far the love of God will go. But it brings judgment with it because as people reject it, as people ignore it, as they prefer other things to it, it exposes their nature. It says this is how far the depravity of man will go, that he will even reject this. And in the same way, that's how the cross worked. It brought a judgment on the world. It confirmed the world's condition. This is how far the depravity of the world will go. This is how far our God-ignoring, world-loving, God-belittling hearts will go. And it didn't just end with the death of Christ on the cross. It's still today as people ignore him and prefer other things to him and love sin. The cross judges. It shows our hearts the depth of our rebellion and hatred for God. D.A. Carson says, The world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus, not only as it perpetually debated who he was, but climactically in the cross. In reality, though, the cross was passing judgment on them. That is why Christ has come, to judge the world. In the cross, he judges people who do not respond to his love and his glory. Number two, what else accomplished in the cross? His death would defeat the devil. Look at verse 31 again. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, who is the ruler of this world? You tell me. <clears throat> sort of on your outline, I gave it away. It's the devil, right? Jesus is going to use this title again in chapter 14, the ruler of this world. The devil is the ruler of this world in the sense that he is the father of fallen humanity. So chapter 8. He's the ruler of this world in the sense that he carries out his desires in the practice of sin. Go over to 1 John with me. We're going to look at a cross-reference here a couple times. Chapter 3. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. 
He's the ruler of the world as he carries out his desires in the practice of sin. Look at for chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That is how he rules this world. By the practice of sin. Another couple ways. Revelation 12 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. He deceives people to sin. Then Revelation 12 says he's the accuser of the brothers. So he deceives people to sin, and then he accuses them to God why they deserve to be condemned. He's the ruler of this world. And Jesus says here that through his cross, the devil who has held sway in the world since the fall will be cast out. What does that mean that he is cast out? Um, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have significant influence in this world. He does. He deceives this world. He blinds the eyes of unbelievers. Um, he opposes Christians. <clears throat> Jesus means that the devil's reign over this world has been decisively broken and crushed through the cross. And man, this, is, this point is such good news. The devil's reign of tyranny has received a death blow through the cross. How? Let me give you two ways. <clears throat> Number one, because through the cross, Christ secured the gifts of the new covenant, a new heart, a born-again nature. So here in 1 John 3, look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How? Verse 9, no one born of God. He does it through the new birth. Through the death of Christ, he secured everything needed for the new heart for you and me so that you wouldn't be a slave to sin. That's Romans 6. The gifts of the new covenant. That's how he destroys the, the devil. But there's another way. Go to Revelation 12 now. His reign has also been crushed. Because the only weapon left he has against saved believers has been wrenched from his hands. So remember, we were here in Revelation 12 last week when we talked about believers conquer by not loving their lives even to the point of death, right? Maintaining their following, their hold to Christ even to the end. But look at what comes before that and how it describes how the devil's been defeated. <clears throat> Look at verse 10 of Revelation 12. Back in verse 9, he's thrown down. The dragon is thrown down to the earth and his angels. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before the throne of our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. This is following the ascension of Christ and his cross work. The devil's portrayed as the accuser of the brethren. He was given permission to enter heaven and to accuse people of sin. And it says he especially did this for those that God had saved and forgiven. He tells God that you cannot forgive them of sin. They deserve judgment, condemnation. 
He even indicts the very character of God. But through the cross, on which the Lamb of God died and shed his blood to atone and bear the punishment for every single sin, Jesus cast the devil out. There's no longer any grounds of condemnation for you and me, believers. Michael has sinned and deserved to die, the devil says. The father responds, yes. And Christ, my son, has already satisfied my judgment more than even an eternity in hell could ever satisfy it. He has no more grounds for accusations. They're done. John Piper gives the illustration of the devil being like a snake, big snake, with these big fangs in his mouth. And the fangs are filled with venom. And the venom is the accusations for unforgiven sin. You deserve to be condemned. And if he bites you, it's deadly. But in the cross, Christ ripped those fangs out of his mouth. He has no more grounds for you and me. Piper goes on by saying that the devil can still hurt you. He says he can gum you to death. <laughs> he doesn't have fangs. He can, he can hurt you, but he can't condemn. He can't bring a legitimate charge for the throne of God. He's been thrown out. In Revelation 12, John tells us that that is how believers conquer the devil. Even to the extent of not loving our lives to the point of death, but it's first by the blood of the Lamb we conquer, who satisfied God's judgment for every single sin of you, believer. And if that's the case, well, my goodness, it transforms the Calvary Road now. I respond not by gutting discipleship out, but how? By knowing I've been so loved, so forgiven, heaven is so guaranteed, I'm not going to love my life even to the point of death. That is how these believers conquer here, and that's how you will conquer the beast. He might gum you to death. He might kill you, but you'll conquer in this way. Let me give you a couple more. Number three. His death, Christ's death, would involve his exaltation through crucifixion. Go back to John 12, verse 32. Christ says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth. This word lifted up is intentionally ambiguous. It can mean exaltation. But John doesn't want us to miss. It's the manner of Christ's death he's speaking of. Look at verse 3. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. From what we've seen, the, the, these two nuances belong together. It's as Christ is lifted up on the cross doing everything we've just talked about taking your condemnation that he is exalted in glory and that's when you see that glory of his that you were made his own look at the very next point verse number number four his death would effectually draw all kinds of people look at verse 32 again and i when i am lifted up in my glory on the cross from the earth i will draw all people to myself the power of the cross consists in the glory of the cross. He powerfully draws people to himself in his cross. 
It didn't just defeat the devil. It also gathers his own to himself. Now, people often like to use this verse as an argument against the teaching that God draws some people to himself and not others. They say, well, it says here that Jesus, when he's lifted up, he'll draw all to himself, right? But I, I, I want to show you three reasons why that, that cannot be the, the case. Number one, do these quickly. Jesus says, uses the verb to drag here. When I lift it up, I will drag all people to myself. It refers to an effectual drawing. We saw it back in chapter 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Yeah. And it's effectual. What does that mean? It means everyone that the Father draws results certainly in salvation because Christ says, I respond by raising him up on the last day. But Christ does not raise everybody up on the last day, does he? He doesn't raise everyone to life. He does it for who? Everyone the Father draws. And the point here is the same verb. Everyone Christ draws through his Christ certainly comes to faith. It's effectual. So we can't use that as an argument against it. Number two. All is always constrained to a specific group. It almost never means every person without exception. Actually, in the original here, the word people is not here. It's just, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself. So you have to ask, who's the all? And if you say, what's well, all persons, irrespective of who they are, every single individual, you're importing that into there. It needs to be justified. Often, when we use the word all, we don't mean that. If I said to you, is everybody here this morning? I'm not saying is every single person in the entire world in this room this morning, right? I have a specific group in mind. Well, who is that group that's referred to over and over in the Gospel of John? It's his sheep. It's the ones the Father has given to him. It is all his own for whom he has come to lay down his life and gather into his flock. I'll draw all to myself through the glory of my cross. It's through the power of the cross. Finally, the all is tied to all kinds of people in the context. Who has just come to talk to Christ? The Greeks. It means all kinds of people, not just Jews, but Gentiles, and Chinese, and Americans, and Japanese, and Germans, and even Canadians. So I had to put that in there. He'll draw all kinds of people to himself. But let me give you a few alternatives. If it means every individual without exception, then it means Christ's drawing is weaker than the Father's. Because in chapter 644, the Father's is effectual. If it means every individual without exception, it means Christ's intentions are contrary to the Father's and the Spirit's. Because the Father has a specific group, and the Spirit only blows on certain individuals. I mean, you can't have a contradiction in the Trinity. Number three... It's that Christ is ultimately dependent on fallen humanity to respond rightly to him. Number four, there's no evidence anywhere that human nature is changed in any way generally by Christ's cross. This prevenient grace. Except in the lives of those who've been born again. So let me just give one implication that flows from this. is that Christ's cross is powerful. 
because of what Christ accomplished, because his glory is put on display there. And it's when you see that glory that resistance goes down. Of course I'm going to come to him. He's my life. Well, that leads us to the final point. We just take one minute. One minute here. Jesus judges the unbelieving world in this hour in verses 34 to 36. And this section ends with human responsibility. If we just saw divine sovereignty, it ends with human responsibility. My friends, you have to believe. You have to respond. And that's what Jesus does. There's no contradiction. He commands them to believe. Look at verses 34 to 36. The crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? There's more misunderstanding here. They're ignoring these texts and Christ's teaching that he must suffer. They just want the political Messiah. Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you become sons of light. You see that? Walk, command. Believe, command. You have to believe in him. You have to look, see his glory. That's what you urge to unbelievers, and that's what you urge to yourself every day. Look to Christ. Believe in him. Turn your eyes to him. Because if you don't, there is inevitable judgment is where he leads it. You don't have light. You remain in darkness. If you fail to believe now while Christ is present on earth, he will be removed. And you'll be left in darkness and in judgment. So that's the call for me and you. Know what he accomplished for you. Begin there. He's the Lamb of God. He suffered this extent for you. That's how much he loved you. Let that grip your heart. Even when you cared nothing for him. And even still today, I don't love him. And he did all of this for me. By the blood of the lamb, he disarmed the devil. He gave me a new heart, new life. Live every day. Believe. Intentionally cast your eyes on him. Trust in him. And follow, depending on him. Every day of your life. That is the road of discipleship. And that way you'll conquer and enter glory. We're out of time. Any final questions, comments? Mike, you said the, the very beginning we talked about total depravity, the wonderful segue into what everyone's going to hear that hasn't been to the sermon this morning on Romans chapter 3. It was just outstanding. Yeah. Those two things, and you get in Romans 3, they juxtapose the total depravity of man. His inability, his corruption with the love and the work of God in Christ. It's just, that's the Christian life, my friends, to know that. Grow in it, love it, let it change you, and from that, follow him. On the Calvary Road. So, let me pray. Love you, Father. Thank you. Thank you. Bless the Lord, my brothers and sisters, this morning, build them up in their most holy faith. Help us to love Christ by knowing his love that he had for us first. We love you. Commit our day into your hands and the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.
You are dismissed. <laughs>